The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. And this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, Global Leaders in Fertility and IVF. In this episode, we dive into the topic of endometriosis and the diet. We go deep with dietitian Stephanie Velakis, also known as the dietologist. Stephanie opens up about her own personal experience of being diagnosed with endometriosis and why this has helped her develop a specific interest in helping women manage their period pain through diet. The recently launched Australian Endometriosis Clinical Practice Guideline commented on dietary therapies such as gluten-free and dairy-free diets, vegetarian and the FODMAP diet. I discussed these interventions with Stephanie. Whether you have surgically diagnosed endometriosis or period pain, you may benefit from following certain dietary changes. First, a little bit about Stephanie Velakis. Stephanie Velakis is an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and the founder of The Dietologist. Stephanie and her virtual practice are dedicated to excellence in nutrition for reproductive health concerns, fertility and pregnancy. Her passion for nutrition in this space has truly grown from her experience helping her clients online from around the world and also through her own personal experiences of navigating a diagnosis of endometriosis. I've left links in the show notes for how you can connect and learn with Stephanie. I hope you enjoy our chat. Stephanie Velakis, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Last year, we also talked about endometriosis, and I, well, I wanted to pick your brains about it to see if there are any updates for 2021. Uh, before we go into that, though, why do you have an interest in endometriosis and, and fertility in particular? Why? Where does that come from? Um, I think this probably has multiple answers. Um, first, I guess I got really interested in kind of fertility and preconception nutrition. Um, quite early, I thought I was going to be a pediatric or a children's dietitian, and I was for, for a short amount of time. Um, and I really enjoyed working with children, but I also realized when you work with children, you, you also work with their parents um, <laughs> in terms of changing things. And so my, my mission as a young dietitian and as a student dietitian was to prevent people from getting sick later in life. And I thought, you know, my contribution was helping them through diet to prevent disease. Um, many preventable diseases relate to diet, right? So I thought, oh, you know, what what better time to get in than with kids? It's the earliest part that you can in, improve their life and their future, right? And so what I started to learn when I was in the pediatric space that a lot of what was happening to these children, particularly in their very younger years of, you know, their first two or three years or even up to five years old, um, a lot of it felt a little bit out of out of their hands. And so when I asked them questions about what happened to them in pregnancy and before and asking their, their mother in particular what was going on, um, I started to, to kind of see this correlation between what was going on then and how that was starting to impact their child. And so I really started to do more research into kind of Barker's hypothesis or the first 1,000 days of life, um, and I realised preventative health actually started with preconception. Um, and so naturally as you kind of work in this preconception space, fertility also comes along. And I guess I've always had a real interest in 
fertility even before my studies. I didn't realize it, but yeah, I was always really interested in the technology around it and how it all worked. And I think I always had this sense that potentially that would be something that I would have to explore and wasn't ever a particular reason why. (laughs) Uh, Like nobody in my family, I'd never seen infertility in my family um, that I knew of. I, I didn't know anyone going through it, nothing like that. I just felt overwhelmingly that it was something I needed to know about for myself. And so interestingly enough, um, I was then, you know, later on diagnosed with endometriosis myself after about five years of um, symptoms and I guess being misdiagnosed, which is a common occurrence in, in endometriosis. And yeah, it was really actually my clients um, when I was consulting at your office, Tash, that really made me realize I needed to go and get a diagnosis was just how differently these symptoms present for different people. It's not always the classical um, significant debilitating period pain and heavy bleeding, Um, although that's certainly a symptom to be aware of, but mine were a lot more subtle and easy to brush under the Uh, under the carpet so um yeah it took a lot of people (laughs) talking to a lot of people and I remember one day in clinic every single person I saw had endometriosis and obviously that piqued my interest already but um their symptom profile before being diagnosed was incredibly uh subtle in the sense that most of their symptoms related to fatigue so that was like a bit of an eye-opener to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, like this could really happen to anybody. You just have to go and get it checked out. So after my own diagnosis in uh, late 2019, I guess that probably lit the fire underneath me and I, I got pretty, I guess I, got, I went through the grieving stages where you get angry at some stage and I got really angry at the lack of um, information about endometriosis in the nutrition space and how much misinformation there was out there and, all the rabbit holes people were going down in desperation of trying to fix this painful disease um, that can affect your fertility. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I married up both of my interests of endometriosis and fertility. Wow. You've come a long yeah. way then, huh? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really I find it interesting how people get into their certain passion and, and what, what drives that. Um, yeah. And you're right, you know, preventative health equals preconception health mm. in a big way. So yeah. say I've come to see you, I've, I, I've, I refer a lot of patients to you and, and I, I'm, I'm one of the clients referred to you by Dr. Tash mm-hmm. and I come to you with really bad period pain and I might have endometriosis because my sister and my mum have it and, you know, we know there's a genetic link there, but I actually want to avoid surgery. So I haven't actually had the gold standard diagnosis, mm-hmm. which is laparoscopy. And I'm not too keen on it at this stage because, you know, I'm in, I don't know, second trimester of uni or I'm in year 12 and I can't take time off. Mm-hmm. What dietary, dietary advice would you, Stephanie Velakis, give me? So there would be a few key things that I would be looking at modifying when it comes to period pain. The first one is increasing omega-3 intake. Um, both Which we're going to diet. talk about on the next episode. Yes, <laughs> both through diet and through supplementation. Um, endometriosis, whether suspected or confirmed, I treat 
very, very similarly. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's really an inflammatory condition. And so using omega-3s in a way can be helpful for combating inflammation and that can help with some of the pain. But the other reason that's so effective is because it also can help modify the prostaglandin um, production pathways, which are these chemical messengers that create smooth muscle contraction of it's trying to create smooth muscle contraction of the uterus so you can shed your lining, but uh, it can also act locally on other organs like your bladder and your bowel. And so often that leads to that classical period poop scenario that I know many women experience, but it's particularly pronounced in people with endometriosis, I find. Um, so omega-3s can really help with that in inflammation and the prostaglandins by helping to synthesize more of that um, anti-inflammatory prostaglandin. So that's my first tip. My second tip would be to increase your fiber intake. So fruits, veggies, uh, nuts and seeds, legumes and beans, whole grains. That's really important because we want lots of dietary fiber coming in. That will help us not only use the bathroom regularly, which is important, but estrogen can then go on to have some biological activity in the body if we're not excreting it via our bowels, so going to the toilet for a number two. So fiber intake and omega-3s would probably be two really good places to start. And then from there, kind of evaluating how you go from a symptom perspective in the coming months. And then we might try some additional strategies depending on how you're going. Obviously, diet is not going to, you know, cure endometriosis or anything like that. It's really just about helping to enhance symptom management, delaying surgery. If people don't want to do surgery, it's an alternative um, that they can use to try and help manage some of their symptoms. But there are so many different therapies that can also complement endometriosis management as well. I've also, in you know, talking to many women, I've seen people reduce their cow dairy intake and red meat intake. And often they say that their period pain improves. Can you comment more on that? Yeah, um, it's probably a combination of a few different things. The first one that comes to mind is likely saturated fat intake. So red meat is particularly untrimmed red meat is likely to contain higher amounts of saturated fats. And then, you know, full cream dairy milk is likely to also have more saturated fat than potentially some other sources. So those two have that in common. So that could be a potential um, driver of in worsening kind of inflammation, particularly without adequate omega-3s. So that could be one explanation. The other thing is that cow's milk tends to be a food that many people experience some form of intolerance to, so whether that be lactose intolerance um, which is more falling into the kind of irritable bowel syndrome category, which we know about 50% of people with endometriosis experience. So lactose intolerance, obviously, if you eliminate that, you have less bowel symptoms. If your bowel symptoms are better, potentially your pain can get better. If your bowel isn't full all the time or experiencing painful bloating or gas or wind. So that's another potential explanation. And then also... Some people don't digest certain proteins in the cow's milk either. So particularly A1 beta casein protein would be something that um, 
is anecdotally I find with people with endometriosis report that they struggle with um, conventional milk, but if they use sheep's milk or goat's milk or A2 beta casein only um, milk, that they are fine. So sometimes it's about type of product or frequency or amount consumed in one sitting and just refining all those things but I mean at the end of the day if you feel awesome not having any milk and not having any red meat and that's the solution and you're happy with that I mean as long as you're finding other ways to meet your nutrient requirements for iron and calcium and um, you're not inadequate in protein or anything like that like all power to you you can absolutely lead very healthy life without those things but I think particularly with endometriosis a lot of people feel pressure to um cut things out yeah particularly gluten yeah yeah absolutely which is not so good I think for everyone is it having to cut out gluten when you actually don't have a really good reason to do it yeah I think there's there's certainly some people that benefit from it but um I think the key thing before you experiment with gluten is number one, get yourself a celiac disease screening with your doctor, um, particularly if you're trying to conceive because celiac disease incidence is slightly higher in people experiencing infertility and quite significantly higher in people with endometriosis. I think the last statistic was 17%. People with endo also have celiac disease, so it's actually pretty high. Yeah, pretty high comorbidity rate. Um, And then the general population, it's 1%. And then in the infertility, subfertility population, it's 2%. So, yeah, it's a big big jump. (laughs) Uh, So number one is get yourself a celiac serology screen before you start because if you feel really awesome doing it, chances are no one will convince you to reintroduce it and then it's going to be hard to know for certain whether you have celiac disease or not because the genetic test can tell you if you'll never get it. But if you come back with that genetic susceptibility, it's always going to be a question mark. And being gluten-free because you have an intolerance but, you know, you are have a hot chip that's coated in uh, wheat flour um, is probably no big deal. But for somebody with celiac disease, that's not okay. So it is important to know that difference. Um, The second thing is, yes, we have some data in endometriosis sufferers that about 75% of people will benefit from potentially going gluten-free from a symptom perspective, and that was over a period of 12 months. 25% said no worsening of symptoms but no improvement either. But the question is, is it gluten, the protein itself, or is it another part of the foods that we often eliminate when we go gluten-free, like wheat, rye, and barley, which could be rather the carbohydrate element like fructan, which is part of the FODMAP kind of clan. So... With the high incidence of IBS in endo, it's it's hard to separate out what is causing the problem and it, it seems very nuanced and like who cares if you feel better, just do it. But it does give you a lot of flexibility um, and a lot of people do get sick of the gluten-free options because they're either not great tasting or don't have the same texture or they're limited Um, so that can have an impact on quality of life in another way. And then, of course, we've also got a risk of increased risk of nutrient um, depletion. So things like iodine, potentially not as good, um, dietary fibre, 
Some gluten-free breads aren't fortified with folic acid. So there's lots of different considerations that we need to have a look at. Um, And we don't think that a gluten-free diet is in fact healthier. We're seeing higher rates of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in people with celiac disease. Um, So we think potentially that could be driven by um, poor quality diet. So don't assume that a gluten-free diet is necessarily a healthier diet. It just means that if you are you know, finding good success on a gluten-free diet with your healthcare professional, that you're going to have to make some extra effort to make sure that you're hitting your nutrient requirements for everything else using your diet. So say I'm going back to that client where I've, um, you know, I've come in, I don't want surgery. You make the advice around diet, omega-3s and increasing fiber intake. That works, but it doesn't completely get rid of my period pain. So I've decided that I'm going to have a laparoscopy. And a laparoscopy, I get diagnosed with endometriosis and there is some endometriosis on my bowel Mm -hmm. uh, that they've had to take out. They've had to do a bowel resection. Mm Post-surgery, how would you advise me in regards to my diet? Yeah, so... Post-surgery, immediately post-op, the key things I kind of look for are, A, you know, making sure that your bowels are working soon after, so a high-fibre kind of diet um, that you tolerate, and then things like wound healing, so adequate protein, zinc, and vitamin C, and sometimes we use a supplement for zinc and vitamin C too to promote faster wound healing. Um, So that's one aspect. And then longer term, I'd be really looking at what is your bowel symptom profile post-op? Are you still getting some bloating? Are you still getting some constipation or diarrhea or some urgency? Or what what does your bowel symptom profile look like and what's bothering you? And how can we then target that? So usually with bowel endometriosis, even potentially post-op, some people do have residual bowel symptoms. Um, So sometimes they will kind of still fall into then the category of irritable bowel syndrome. So we'll start to progress down kind of a treatment pathway that will help with that. So again, if their symptoms are more on the kind of diarrhea spectrum and bloating spectrum, the low FODMAP diet might be an option. They're more on the constipation side I generally don't necessarily go straight to the low FODMAP diet. Um, I tend to find that it can restrict fibre a little bit too much and so it can sometimes worsen constipation. So my preference is to try some other strategies first. But um, I will say like a, a large proportion of women that I see with endometriosis that are diagnosed post-op um, with bowel endo end up having to do FODMAPs to some degree, whether that be a simplified approach or the full protocol, um, but they do they do experience um, some improvement in symptoms post-op using that. So tell us about the FODMAP diet. Yeah, so FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharide disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols, which is why there's an acronym because that is a mouthful. And these are, in short, fermentable carbohydrates and fibres. So that means our large intestine, where most of the bacteria live, are doing the work of fermenting them and turning them into gas, um, particularly, which can then lead to some of those symptoms of painful bloating um, and passing excess wind. Um, and they're quite osmotic as well. So that will mean that water can move freely in and out of the bowel and change the consistency of the bowel motions. So people that are 
have intolerances to certain FODMAPs at different levels are not digesting these higher up in the digestive tract, so the small intestine, for example. And so they're ending up in this large intestine environment where it's kind of like kids in a candy store for the bacteria that lives there because it's such quick, effective energy for them to extract. So they'll rapidly ferment those and that's what kind of creates those symptoms. So for people with endometriosis who also have bowel symptoms in particular, um, we have some data to show about 50 to 75% of people with both endo and IBS will experience an improvement in their symptoms by using the low FODMAP diet. But what I find in practice is that a lot of people self-initiate on that diet um, and then either don't do it quite right or over-restrict um, or find it incredibly stressful, which I have done it myself. I, I get it. But um, it isn't as hard with some support. And the most important thing is it's a way to help you find out your personal um intolerances and how much of each FODMAP group, so lactose is one, for example, and then you've kind of got your galacto-oligosaccharides, which is your legumes and beans and so on. So there's different groups, there's nine different groups of, of FODMAPs that we need to then systematically reintroduce at different levels and find out what your personal, what's known as threshold is. So can you tolerate a teaspoon of garlic or two teaspoons of garlic. Sounds nominal, but um, that will give you some flexibility rather than I can't eat garlic ever again in my whole entire life. The issue with staying on a low FODMAP diet long-term, even if it does make you feel really good, is that you are restricting prebiotic fibres, which are really important to your gut microbes. So um, oftentimes if you stay on the low FODMAP diet for a long period of time, like a year or two years when it's only meant to be two to six weeks, um, I see people start to have a re-emergence of symptoms because their gut microbiome has started to shift um, and you're, you're starting to get other symptoms now that are an artefact of the fact that you've been on the low FODMAP diet for too long. So it's really important um, that people see a dietitian to help them with this and that they transition through the phases quickly. So the phases are elimination, uh, challenging and then modification or personalization, which is where you kind of liberalize to your personal threshold levels. And so ideally you have minimum symptom and as much dietary flexibility as your individual intolerances allow. And like I say to all my clients, I'm like, at the end of the day, if you're super intolerant to wheat and you decide to go out and have a bowl of pasta and garlic bread with your friends on a Sunday, like, you're an adult, you can decide that for yourself, but you'll know why you feel icky that night or the next day. Um, you'll know why. And that's powerful because at least you can prepare for that. But it's often I find people find it really distressing when they don't know what or why is causing their symptoms. And that's the kind of clarity that the low FODMAP diet can bring for some people. That's interesting. I didn't realize it was only very short term that people should be on this. Mm, yeah, so it's two to six weeks of elimination. Then the challenge phase, you technically should stay low FODMAP during that time and, and challenge each food individually. Um, so that can be up to another 10 weeks depending. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that long at all. Like really, it's a maximum of four months process all up um, and then you should be in the liberalisation phase. So, yeah, when people come to me and say I've been doing it for three or four years, um, 
it's that's not right. That's not what it's designed to do. <laughs> the diagnostic diet, yeah. And was FODMAP an Australian invention? Mm, it is. Um, Monash University were the leaders um, and continue to be the leaders in the research um, of the low FODMAP diet for irritable bowel syndrome and other and other conditions. Um, so yeah, it is. It's an Aussie Aussie invention. And they've got an app. Is that right? They do. Um, I highly recommend that app. It is a saviour, particularly um, if you're whether you're working with a dietitian or not. It is so helpful. Um, it's got a great food and symptom diary um, uh, little curve, like section, and you can even email it to your healthcare provider. So it's got all, all those details in one space. And then you've got your FODMAP food guide. And then within that, once you get to the point of finishing your challenges, the most satisfying thing is when <laughs> my clients are like, yeah, Steph, like I know, I know kind of now, but like I still don't know what that means for like all the foods. And then we go in and we apply the filters in the Monash FODMAP app and to their individual intolerances. And then the whole app is recalibrated to your intolerance levels and they're like mind blown it's so satisfying every time (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like a cool app do you remember what the name is of the app it's just called the monash fodmap app oh wow monash fodmap app App. (laughs) that's a bit of a a tongue twister that one yeah just like fodmap is (laughs) (laughs) so does how does your online program support women suffering from endometriosis yeah, so my online program, Get Pregnant with Endo, is really a passion project that I've been working on over the last nine months or so, which I really dedicated to it being kind of the most comprehensive library of information related to endometriosis and nutrition. And the way that I've designed the program is to step people through from diagnosis if they've just been diagnosed what is this disease what does it even mean how are you affected by this disease and getting them to explore what their symptoms are and sometimes people don't realize some you know some symptoms that they were having were related to endo like you know maybe they had some low back pain in their period before and now that's gone after surgery for example so just getting them to tune into those things and then from there we work through reducing inflammation uh, understanding hormones and hormone patterns and how that impacts endometriosis and, and just your cycle in general and how to eat to support that. Uh, we also talk about uh, gut health, how do we optimise gut health and how do we target specific symptoms. So bloating and kind of endo belly are kind of the two biggest issues that I see in terms of this domain. But, of course, we've also got constipation, diarrhoea and IBS. And then the next step is to focus on fertility, so enhancing preconception nutrition, supporting egg quality, supporting sperm quality, what to do around implantation, and also supporting male fertility as well. And then the last module is all about trying to gain freedom. So how do we navigate social situations when potentially we have some food intolerances? How do you build a multidisciplinary team that's going to support you when it comes to your endo management and your infertility? And, yeah, I I really tried to make it very practical. And then that last module also includes um, quite an in-depth tutorial about um, evidence-based supplementation around endometriosis as well. So 
it's designed to really take people from A to Z and then I it, it's, it's not a stagnant program so I'm continuing to build um, resources for it so things like what do you do if you are nauseous what do you do if you have both PCOS and endometriosis which isn't all that uncommon and how do you navigate some of those things that might also crop up so yeah um get pregnant with endo is is my little baby <laughs> for now and um yeah I'm really excited to I guess launch it and uh, bring it out into the world so people can hopefully get some benefit and reduce their bloating optimize their fertility and hopefully manage some of their painful symptoms as well so obviously I don't need to be uh, wanting to conceive to do this program do I I mean, no, I, I designed it with people who would like to conceive, you know, in the short term future in mind, but 90% of it is just about good endo management. I see it going hand in hand. If you manage your endometriosis as best as you can, that's really going to help support your fertility indirectly. Um, and then there's a few little things that you can do on top that can help enhance fertility further. But um, yeah, absolutely. If you If you're thinking about family planning later down the track, then I still think it's a really valuable program to consider. So on the topic of fertility, I have a Mm. big question for you, Steph. Mm. When does life begin? You know, when I read this question, all I could think of is life begins at 30 because (laughs) (laughs) it's a milestone birthday and I'm hoping it's true. So, (laughs) Is that right? So I assume you're still in your 20s. That's my answer. Um, No, when does life begin? Um, I feel like in my brain it is when um, you get the the heartbeat on the ultrasound. I think for me that's when it's – I really like that's when I feel like life begins. I yeah. think up until that point, I really feel like it's cells. I don't know. That's just how I, I feel about it. But everybody interprets all that stuff differently. I, I'd agree with you on that one. That's when I feel that life begins when there's a heartbeat. Yeah, I agree. I think it's such a like a common life force between everybody, right? And, you know, if you don't have a heartbeat, then it's the opposite of life, right? So, <laughs> that's um, right. We- end of life that's what we're that's what we're waiting to to disappear and so I think the start of life has to be then the same thing full circle right start start of life has to be when you first hear the heartbeat and then um, end of life is when there's no more heartbeat right so yeah that's my answer thank you Steph for um for sharing an, an update on endometriosis and diet my pleasure thanks for having me again Tash I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Stephanie Velakis. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Next week, join me as I discuss the Omega-3 diet with Stephanie. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.